Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of For What It's Worth podcast. You know what? I'm sitting here thinking about the Senegalese, and I'm thinking about the Argentines, and I'm thinking about the Singaporeans and the Danes, and I'm thinking about Djibouti, and I'm thinking about Perth, Aussies. I'm thinking about Moroccans. I'm thinking about Iraqis, Iranians. I'm thinking about United Arab Emirates. I'm thinking about France, thinking about Iceland, Greenland, and I'll even throw the Faroese in there. And yeah, I'm thinking about Canada because they're so damn nice. But uh, I'm sitting here, I'm a man of the world. And I think uh, a lot of you are too. I'm thinking of the Japanese, the South Koreans, the Chinese, and I'm even thinking about the Russians because I know they're thinking about me. I'm thinking about the Taiwanese. I'm thinking about Madagascar. I'm thinking about Namibia and Zambia, Ghana, Sierra Leone, Libya. I'm thinking about all these places. How about the Bolivians and the Ecuadorians and the Peruvians? And how about the, uh, the Brazilians? How do we forget? I'm thinking about Lionel Messi right now. I'm thinking about Jamaica. I'm thinking about the British Virgin Islands. I'm thinking about Panama, Mexico, man of the world. So I'm just curious. You're out there somewhere. You're in one of these places, I'm guessing. Uh, we are in what's called a mal tiempo, bad time. So hopefully everybody out there is in good shape and uh, being smart. I think today is the day that we reemphasize with ourselves that it is about now. Our world, our lives are about the collective. It's about us and not I. Because we all have to take action to protect each other, not just our own personal self-interests. The way I see it is it's a short-term sacrifice to avoid a major long-term disaster. So um, this podcast is never sponsored. It's never brought to you by anyone. But there is a company I want to point out because I bought something from, from them that I, I absolutely love. Uh, it's called the Taos Honey Company, and Taos is a town about 70 miles north of Santa Fe, T-A-O-S, Honey Company. And I ran into them at a trade show a couple months ago, and they had this thing. I love honey to begin with. I love bees. I love everything to do with bees. But they had this thing called CBD-infused honey, and they had two kinds. They had like a normal human kind, and then they had like the person who is obsessed with C CBD, which had like double the weight. And there's a name for it. I can't remember. I was on the site this morning. I bought some of the normal stuff for my mom. But here's the difference that I found between this and other stuff is they left the taste of the CBD in. And if you've ever smoked pot or smelled pot or had CBD that had that really sort of marijuana taste to it, this is so good. I bought a little jar. It was 20 bucks. Bought a little jar. It lasted me forever. It lasted me months. They say there's 35 servings on the thing, but I think you can stretch it out a little bit longer. And um, I didn't also didn't have it every day, but it was so good. And the taste of the CBD on top of the honey is so different. Now, here's the thing. I found it a little, the taste a little heavy for putting it in like um, tea or something like that, but I just ate it by itself. And I'm a big CBD fan. I've been a big fan since I got Lyme and my first or second or third or fourth or fifth Lyme doctor um, recommended it to me. And so I've been on CBD ever since of varying kinds. It's hard to find really good CBD. There's a lot of junk out there. And some of the labeling is really deceptive. Um, hopefully they'll work that out in the long run because there is good stuff and there's a lot of, lot of crap. But Taos Honey Company, it's good. Just bought some this morning from my mama. So I'm sitting here with my 1987 iPad Pro with a Chevy 350 and a four-barrel carburetor. And it's got dual exhaust and glass packs. And I'm ready to get this thing started. Uh, number one point of today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to hit you with a point before the hero of the week. This point is Apple, if you're listening, I need the new iPad Pro and I need, need the new Mac Mini and I need monitors. And I'm hoping that you can just give those to me because I have been a production machine over the last three weeks. I've been a production machine my whole ent entire adult life. But this last three or four weeks has been off the charts. I think I've done six films. I've probably done 20 different blog posts. And I'm doing all of this from basically a six-year-old laptop. So it's ugly at times. And um, a lot of your people out there are not really not use, using their machines. And if I see another YouTube video 
about some idiot showing me the perfect desktop setup where you everything is lit and their desktop is perfect and everything is in place and there's every I do everything like this and look, I built this desk and my monitor's perfect and my laptop is perfect and it's all in the perfect spot and blah, blah, blah. None of those people have ever made anything good in their life. None of them. I guarantee you because I have been in studios of some of the most talented people in the United States. I have been from Miami, Florida to New York to California, Los Angeles, San Francisco, gallery owners, curators, museums, photographers, artists, etc., writers. I have never in my life seen someone who produces high-level work that works at a workstation like that. That I'm calling horseshit on all of it. That's just another YouTube thing to make you feel bad that your workstation doesn't look like that. That's a workstation, these perfect desktop setups. Again, you've seen these films where it's like, oh, this is my ultimate workstation. And then you look at it and you go, you know what? It's your ultimate workstation because all you do is make lame YouTube videos. You don't make anything original. I don't know an original thinker whose brain is that clean. Now, there might be one exception. A friend of mine used to do some, friend of a friend really, he's a friend of mine, but he's better friends with a friend of mine. He used to do a lot of work for David Lynch. And apparently Lynch had this huge room that was completely empty, high ceilings, concrete floor, totally empty, except there was a hole cut in the wall for a monitor. And there was one desk, one chair and a keyboard. And that was the entire room. Now with Lynch, it makes sense. But here's the thing. Lynch can get away with it. Lynch has a lineage of creating completely unique work over decades, writing, artwork, films, et cetera, et cetera. You know what? He can do it. If he can do it, no problem. You YouTubers out there trying to sell people on these things through your affiliate links, you should be ashamed of yourself. Forget it. You don't need a workstation like that. By the way, my phone is putting off so much feedback that if I get it even remotely close to the mic or the uh, recorder, it just goes haywire. That's not good. That doesn't sound good. Okay, hero of the week. The hero of this week does not exist yet because what I'm looking for in my hero this week is anyone, anyone in the Republican Party who can stand up to Donald Trump. We are in the middle of an international pandemic and financial meltdown, the likes of which the world has never seen. And this buffoon is up at the podium every day, lying out his ass, nonstop, drug cocktails. Gee, did you do any research on that? No, but I just feel like it'll work. I mean, this is, we're in, we're in uncharted waters here now. No one, you can tell by the looks of the faces of the people around him. They're standing up there like, holy crap. Why is he at the podium? Now, I don't have television. I don't watch television. I'm a, I heard that MSNBC and CNN cut away from him speaking and waited for the scientists like Fauci to get back up and start saying something. I think that's really smart because there's a lot of dumb people in the United States that support this guy who are so radicalized through their religion and political beliefs that they will believe whatever it is he says. So this idea of like, hey, we're going to kickstart the economy again in five days is just absolute and sheer lunacy. So my hero is anyone Anyone in the Republican Party who can stand up to him and say, shut up, sit down, get away from the mic, we're taking over. Because, man, are we headed for a disaster. We are headed, headed for an 18-month window of hell, I think, if we, if we let this clown have his way. Um, I'm just stunned at what's happened to the Republican Party. Think of the Republicans however you, you will, but think about them going back to the George Bush era. And I'm not saying the party was in super healthy condition back then. Um, we all thought it was a disaster, but compared to what we have now, it looks like, you know, it looks like all wine and roses, but there was still a semblance of rational thought happening back during the Bush Cheney era. And I know that's a stretch because they made some colossal mistakes, but here's the thing. This is just one example that will separate the, the, their group from the Trump group. Both Bush and Cheney came out years later and said, you know what? We screwed up. We went into Iraq on bad intel. Trump would never do that. First of all, he couldn't find a rack on a map. He doesn't read intel. He can't read. He's not interested. You know, we are at a, at a whole different level of corruption, fraud, and just inability to, to, to get the job done. So I'm hoping that some Republican just says, look, I'm going to sacrifice my career for the health of the party and the health of the nation because, man, do we need it. Okay, I am uh, moving on here. So we're going to talk a little bit about photography now. And I, I mentioned this in last, whatever the, whenever I did the last one of these things, but 
I, I mentioned that I had seen this story that I thought was crowdsourced, and it wasn't. It was actually assigned to an Instagram photographer who was so horrible that he'd done this. And it was an event that I was actually at, and I saw his work and just was like, oh, my God, this is a state of affairs. Well, something else happened that just uh, kind of stopped me in my tracks. So I saw another spread in a what's considered to be, as a photographer, it's considered to be one of the most important editorial outlets in the United States, and some consider it one of the most important ed editorial outlets in the world. And they had assigned multiple photographers to work on a project. And I saw the title of the project. I did not know any of the photographers, but I saw the title of the project, and I was like, ooh, that could be really good, because that's a good story. And I thought, oh, if someone had assigned me that, and I was here in Santa Fe, even if I had 24 hours, the amount of work and the, I think the range of work that I could have come back with, I know that I would have had something that was pretty decent. I'm not saying life-changing, not saying portfolio necessarily, but, but good, solid. I could give you a really good base of images in probably half a day. And I, saw all th I went through all three of these photo essays. And to say that they were garbage uh, is a wild understatement. I mean, there was not a singular image in all three that had any sense of someone's fingerprints on them. They were garbage. And again, this was assigned and paid for and featured not just as a regular story. It was featured as a online main under its own title, under its own little mini masthead was this feature. And there was not a single decent, and I'm talking, these pictures were a long way from good. No point of view, no unique, no angle that said, oh, I know who did that. Nothing. These were not photographers. These are content makers who will work for free or work for next to nothing, who will probably do, you know, who knows? I mean, I, I, my guess is they made less than $150 to do this. And at that point, why would you even do it? Just do it for yourself and then promote it through your own channels. You're going to do a better job of promoting and running it, but it was um, it was horrible. And I think what's happened again, and I'm going to bring this up over and over and over again, is that photo editors now are very young for the most part, and they're clueless. They don't have the training, they don't have the education, they don't have the history, but they have ego and they have insecurity, and they have someone over them threatening them about budget. And that's unfortunate because because of that, the photo editor positions have really fallen off in relevance over the years because the, all the good ones have been fired or laid off. They're just too expensive. So you have young editors who don't know what they're doing with no experience, who are terrified, who hire their friends, and then are threatening them saying, if you go a penny over budget, I'm going to get fired. And so the quality of work has just fallen so far. It is irrelevant. It's meaningless. Even in this... This editorial outlet, which is, again, considered to be and highly respected. Personally, I've never liked them. I think they get by on reputation, and they do shoddy work, and there's plenty of examples of them doing shoddy work. And the egos, they're, they're an East Coast-based publication. That should sum it up for you. They have that attitude of like, hey, we are, we're the center of the world. So, and I think what, the, what these young editors have for, forgotten is that building a following and having numbers on following has nothing to, nothing to do with whether or not you can make a good image, especially an image on deadline, under pressure for a specific story. You can take pic pic pictures of people in straw hats on the beach all day long that you're, that you're setting up because you know it's mindless fodder that the masses will consume. But when someone says, okay, now turn that side of your brain off and turn on the actual good side, they don't have a good side. They haven't figured it out yet because they haven't spent enough time shooting. But here's where, and this is part, this is point three. I'm going to move this into its own separate point because I think there's a fair number of people on this podcast that are younger than I am who probably don't know some of the things that we had even 15, 20 years ago because I was uh, in Texas recently visiting my mother and I stumbled across a copy of a 1996, I want to say it was August, August 96 copy of Life magazine. Now, I happened to get published in that issue. It was the only issue I was ever published in Life Magazine. And if I had to say, like, one of my top accolades in photography, that would be it. Even though I had one image in that issue and I didn't have a byline, they screwed up the byline and gave the byline to somebody else. And the photo editor, a guy named David Friend, uh, who at the time wrote me this literally handwritten letter and said, I apologize, I screwed up on the byline. It didn't really matter to me, but he wrote that letter. Super cool. He was a really respected guy, still is in the photography world. So I find this Life magazine, and I'm like, oh, yeah. My mom goes, I wonder why I kept that. And I'm like, geez, mom, because I'm published in it. She was like, uh, whatever. 
So I opened this thing up. I had not looked at it in over a decade, I'm sure. And yeah, the cover story was about Everest, um, which uh, was then made into a, a book called Into Thin Air. It was a disaster on Everest where a bunch of climbers died, got caught in a, caught in a storm up at the, at the summit. It's very famous. You, I'm, I'm sure that all of you know about that story. And so I start looking at this Life magazine. Now, I haven't looked at Life magazine in a long time, but coming up in photography, Life was one of the pinnacle publications to get published in. It was a huge deal if you could get into Life. So just check this out. In one issue, that issue, August 96 of Life magazine, you had a photograph by Lucian Clark, uh, not a photograph, a photo essay, an essay, people. That means... Not, a, not one image square on Instagram that you spend a half second with. This is a full-on essay that was edited by a professional editor, that was designed by a professional designer, that was shot by a professional photographer, that was written by a professional writer. It is a real deal showcase of photography. This is how photography should be consumed. That's why the picture magazines like Look and Life were so revolutionary. They opened, they took the world's head and just peeled it back because people had literally never seen anything like this. So in one issue, in August 96, you had a photo essay, photo essay by Lucian Clark. If you don't know him, it's C-L-E-R-Q-U-E. If you don't know him, shame on you, should. Um, unbelievable photo essay. You had a photo essay by Lynn Johnson, who, by the way, is like one of the only people I've ever seen shoot black and white for National Geographic. She's an unbelievable photographer. She had a full photo essay in there. You had a full photo essay by Stephen Wilkes. You had another by Rick Rickman, you had another by Tony O'Brien, and you had another by Andy Levine. All of these in the same issue. It was stunning. I sat there on the couch at my mom's thinking to myself, how on earth did we sink so far to go away from something like Life Magazine that showcased that kind of work to the garbage that we are putting out on a daily, nonstop basis to fill? And what they're doing is... Media organizations now are just trying to fill the pipeline. The pipeline for data is so big, they will take anything from anyone to fill that data. If you have never seen Life magazine, it's worth buying an old copy, and you're going to spend probably 15, 20 bucks because a lot of these are obviously long since out of print. I don't have a copy of this one. It is mind-blowing. I probably looked at this thing 10 times. And oh, by the way, those are just the photo essays. There were a myriad of other images in that same issue from world-class photographers that were single images. It was just so much better than anything I've seen in the last decade world, anywhere in the world. Because even Im magazines today that are printed, that are sort of you know, independent magazines that do something, they're advertorials. They're always selling something. Like, right? There's always a, a hook like, you know, oh, it's such and such behind it or whatever. Life was just so stunningly good. I, I'm, I'm simultaneously thrilled to find it and horrified that photography has fallen so far. And we deserve it. Because at the root, root of all problems in the photography industry are, the, are us. It's the photographers. Okay, moving on. Point number four. I want to talk a little bit about America. So, I think what the virus has done has exposed us again for who we actually are. Now, for those of you from other overseas, in America as a child, you're taught we are the best country. We are the smartest. We're the most advanced. We are the good guys always. We have better systems than anywhere in the world. Everything we do is bigger and better than you. That's what you're taught as a child. And it really transcends all throughout your life. And the problem is that... If you ever speak out and say, you know what, Educ our education system doesn't even rank in the top 100, uh, our crime is through the roof, our gun violence is through the roof, go to, we fight wars over oil and we go for invalid reasons, we don't treat our poor well, we're racist, whatever. If you speak the truth, you're labeled anti-American. And so now what's happened over the last four years is we've transitioned into a post-truth America which is really terrifying. And it's also a challenging puzzle to put together if you're a journalist or a photographer or whoever that's out there trying to do quote-unquote news stories, is you've got 40% of the population who no longer believes in math, science, truth, or fact. They don't care. It doesn't matter. You could point up and say the sky's blue, and they would say that's your opinion. And so what it's just amazing to me that Looking at our response compared to the Singapores of the world, the Taiwans of the world, the Koreas of the world, the Japans of the world, the Chinas of the world, these are all countries that we have been told forever our entire lives, we're better, we're smarter, our systems are better, everything we do is better, and we're more original. It's not true. 
they have, if you look at the systems in place to deal with the virus in China, South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, et cetera, they are so far beyond anything that we can even comprehend. And I think the resp- not only the response to the virus, but, and this goes way back prior to Trump, prior to all these people, is the, how flat-footed we were when this came. Because everyone with a half a brain has been warning us, from the science community anyway, has been warning us that it's on the way. And so to be that flat-footed and unprepared and no masks and no ventilators, no system, uh, first responders still responding with no protective gear to people who are sick, it's just staggering. And I think one of the things that I'm hoping comes from this this whole disaster that we're in right now is, is an ability, and I have no confidence that this will happen, is an ability for Americans to turn around and look in the mirror and say, I've got to make some changes. I, I am perhaps not the person I claim to be, and I'm living in a culture that perhaps isn't the culture that we want it to be. Now, I think the greed, corruption, and fraud is so deep in our culture and society that I don't really have any uh, re- real thought that that's going to transpire. That's my hope. Okay, moving on back to photography. Uh, I want to thank Fleming for sending sending me something again. Um, and I featured this guy before. It's a weird name. He's some strange cat from a frozen land. Sweden, I think. Per Anders Jorgensen. Who names their kid Per? P-E-R. A-N-D-E-R-S-J-O-R-G-E-N-S-E-N. Per Anders Jorgensen. That's not a real name. It's fake. It has to be fake. But he's from some frozen piece of earth in the north side of Europe somewhere. Scandinavia. Um, you know, lots of blue, lots of yellow, long-haired tennis players with headbands and, you know, bad music. I'm just kidding. I love Sweden. Never been. Gonna go, hopefully. Might have to sail over there at some point on a 23-foot sloop by myself. But anyway, this is a legitimate photographer. This is a real photographer who happens to use Fuji cameras. And that's what I want to bring you. Um, I want to bring his name up because Fuji is famous for sponsoring people who I have no I, wild idea why they would ever sponsor them except for social numbers. That can be the that's the only explanation of why they would they would sponsor any of these people. But Per is a really good photographer. But there's a couple of things why he's a good photographer. What 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 if I see him doing something or Fleming says, hey, you should take a look at this. I'll stop at what I'm doing and take a look at it because one, he has an understanding of light. He has an understanding of timing. He has an understanding, a real understanding of composition, but there's more. He's also an art director. And for those of you who've never worked with an art director or an art buyer or a client or an agent, this is a whole different ballgame, people. This ain't just about pictures. Art direction and his understanding of art direction and design and how to tell stories with images is so far beyond most of the other people that Fuji is sponsoring that it's stunning because one, he produces his own magazine as well, which is uh, won a bunch of awards and looks like a super amazing thing. It's about culinary uh, stories all over the world. He has a track record. This guy has produced good work for a long, long time. And when it, it for, for a quote unquote real photographer, and I'm going to throw myself in that that uh, under that uh, description just for a minute. You can spot another legit person very, very quickly, just as you can spot an illegitimate. And, and any, anyone can be a photographer. I'm not saying you have to be a professional to be a legitimate photographer, but there's a lot of people posing and there's a lot of people pretending because it's getting them something. It's getting them followers, getting them traffic, whatever. Guys like Per, I can't imagine him ever going out and saying, okay, we got to drive up our Instagram following or I've got to go get my likes up on YouTube, whatever. He's working all the time and he is a consistent producer of top level work. And for someone who used to be a photographer, me, I have such an appreciation to find someone like that where I know like, oh, it makes me feel good to know that he's in some frozen backwater in Sweden. Because remember, we're better than him. He's in some frozen backwater in Sweden and he's producing this amazing work or Japan, you know, and again, we're better. Just wanted to remind everyone in case you were wondering who has the number one position ranking in the world, it's us. Now, to, uh, to slay Fuji a little bit, the film about Per that, that Fleming sent, and maybe I'm pronouncing his name wrong. Is it Per Anders or just Per? Maybe it's just P-E-P-A-J. Can I, can I call him that? Padge? I only lasted a minute and eight seconds into the film because Fuji doesn't seem to get that the thing, what's important about his film is the image and the narration. These backlit cinematic scenes of the camera, those are for consumers who are never going to buy the shit anyway. So if you're going to make a film about him, get out of the way and don't do backlit scenes of the camera 
with a fog machine. Just let him talk and show him working and show the images. Get out of the way. That's all you need because otherwise you're diluting the power of what he does. He's, he's good. You don't need to shoot 8K cine, cinemagraphic, cinematic, whatever the hell you call it. You don't need to do it. He's already better than, than pretty much everybody you have, right? I'm going to put, there's a, there's a selection of Fuji-sponsored people who are legit. Uh, my buddy Kevin, who shoots for Shimano here in, Cal, er, in the United States, and not the fishing side, the cycling side. Kevin, man, he's a cycling fiend. I mean, this guy is a really good photographer. So there, there are, you know, and, and Fleming, Charlene's working in Kurdistan. There are people out there that are doing really good work with the Fuji stuff that if I need a legitimate answer to whether or not something works or how to use it or should I buy it, I just go to them. The rest of the people, forget it. I don't care how many. If they could have 10 million Instagram followers, I don't care. So if you haven't seen Per Anders Jorgensen, if you've never heard of Sweden because you're online all the time trying to find a way to live in America, <coughs> um, check him out. He's really good. Okay, moving on, point number five, Utrecht. Um, now, Utrecht to me has always been an art supply store in America, but it turns out there's a location in Europe. I think it's in the Netherlands. I could be wrong. I think it's the Netherlands. Any, any of you uh, folks out there from that part of the world, you can correct me. So, uh, oh, wow, I just got real-time COVID-19 update New Mexico instructed to stay home except for emergency essential outings. Stay home, save lives. All non-essential businesses must cease in-person operations. Well, finally, good. New Mexico is, is, uh, is getting out ahead of this thing. We need to, man. It's a poor state. We got we to mind our P's and Q's. Okay, so Utrecht built a car-free district for 12,000 people. Okay, now this was the city in Europe that was home to the very first bike lane. Okay, so I automatically love all Utrechtians, and I love the city. Now, this new center has homes, a health center, a high school, shops and businesses, and an underground garage for 1,800 cars, because there's some people that just cannot get, get around having it, which I totally get. They use electric vehicles to take out the trash. It has green roofs and solar panels. Uh, I mean, I, I just my heart is palpitating thinking about this place. But here's the thing. This is anti-American, right? Would never happen here. It is anti-American, and the sooner the Dutch figure that out, because we all know they all want to move here, right, because we're better. So it's anti-American because this is what happened if we tried to do this here. First of all, if you designed it here, several things would happen right off the back, right off the bat. It would be sold out before the ground was broken, right? Sold out. Every single uh, commercial space, every single living space would be sold out, and it would only go to millionaires, just like the lofts in Newport Beach that used to be big sale manufacturers, right? They built lofts, quote-unquote artist lofts, that started at like $1.5 million to buy them, right? It's a freaking joke. So we would only sell it to millionaires. The poor people and middle class would never be allowed in. They would put up a gate, a security gate and a fence, and they would not allow anyone who's not a millionaire into that property. That's the sad truth. In addition... Our oil and gas industries and our construction industries and our auto industries and the power companies would do every single thing they could to stop it from happening. That's America right now. And again, I live here. I've lived here my whole life. And I'm making a joke about us, you know, everyone wanting to live here. It's true. A lot of people want to come here. It's still an amazing country of opportunity. We are super innovative. We're creative. We have a long track record of doing amazing things. We've done a lot of help in the world. I'm not trying to bash America. But what I'm trying to be is honest about the, the situation. If you built this in a city, let's say Boston decided to do this, the only people that could afford to get into this are millionaires. Let's say you tried Los Angeles, millionaires. Nobody else could do it. So we don't have a hope in hell of this ever happening here. But I want to tip my hat to the Utrechtians, uh, wherever you are, in whatever country, because I tip my hat. I'm impressed. I think it's amazing. It's a great sample for the rest of the world to look at and say, is it possible? And I just hope that we can open our minds a bit and um, get around to some of these things. Okay. So I have a little funny story here. I, uh, so I shot a portrait a few years ago of someone in London, uh, a friend, someone I reached out to and said, I saw your film. I loved it. Can I come and interview you and take your portrait? He said, sure. So we hang out. Years go by. He and I touch base every few months, a couple times a year through email, Twitter, et cetera. I love what he does. Super smart guy, really fun. And he wrote me a couple months ago and said, hey, can you, can I use, uh, there's a magazine here in Germany that wants to use your portrait. I said, sure, go ahead. 
He goes, what do we credit you? You know, they're going to pay you X amount. I said, you know what? Tell them to donate the pay that would come to me. So being Germany, this is great. The story gets better and better. So they're like, we can't donate it. Nope, we're not donating it. We can't, quote, it's impossible. We have to pay you. So I've told you guys many times over the last six months, anything that comes to me as a photographer, I typically say no, or I pass it on, or I try to spin, spin it into covering something like AG23 or one of you guys or whatever. I don't have any interest in doing this anymore. I don't need money from photography. And so I thought, well, you know, hopefully the magazine has a charity set up. They can just take that proceeds and just punch it into the charity. They don't, right? Okay, so I'm not super surprised about that. So I have to go through, I have to do an invoice. I have to do a transfer. I have to do a digital transmission form. It goes on and on and on. Now, it's not, a tr it's not hard. I find the whole thing entertaining because it's, there's so much protocol and bureaucracy and red tape. In the, I, just said, I thought to myself, it's no wonder the photography world is, is in shambles because here I'm just trying to donate 50 pounds to a, tri to a charity Nope, impossible, can't do that. We have to pay you, you have to do this. It can't come through the photographer, it has to come through here, digital transmission form, do this, do that, do whatever. And I'm like, man, I'm super busy. Again, it's not a hassle. And I love the guy whose portrait I made. He's so smart and talented and focused and I want him to be happy. That's the main main thing. So I just thought it was kind of funny because again, I keep getting approached to do this stuff and I just keep saying no, but in this case, I wanted to make sure I'd help him out. Okay, moving on. Uh, I wanted to say something. I've talked a little bit earlier, just a second about the U.S. educational system. And I'm wondering if those of you overseas have ever had this happen to you and if this happens in education in other parts of the world. And even here in America, I'm curious what others think. So do any of you remember something called busy work? Busy work was what happened when a teacher decided to show up and didn't want to teach that day. They would say to you, today we're going to do busy work. Open up your book to, to page 13 and write down everything on the left-hand page. And all you did was copy a textbook for an hour. It was the most insulting, awful, worthless exercise you could possibly imagine. And I, at one point in a social studies class, got fed up and I was like, okay, I know that high school is just a pen to hold me until 3 p.m. so I don't get arrested because I'm not learning a whole hell of a lot. So I said, I don't want to do this. This is a waste of time. And I loved this teacher. She was super cool. And she goes, well, maybe you'd rather have a go, go have a conversation with the principal about it. I said, you know what? I would. I'd love to talk to the principal about it. And she just laughed and said, go sit down and whatever. She was, you know, it was kind of a veiled threat. But that's kind of not the education system that you're after, right? I went to public school and I'm not bashing public school. That's the option for most people. And I think that we can dramatically improve it. I think we need a lot more money and a lot more focus and also a lot more creativity. We have to get rid of all the standardized testing and we have to get rid of all the bureaucracies at state level to really make our education system something remarkable because most people can't afford to send their kids to private where their educations are a little bit more flexible. We need creative thinkers. We need atypical thinkers. And you've really, coming out of public school, you've got to break through the bounds of the bureaucracy to discover who you really are. It can be really tricky. Okay, number eight, point number eight, I want to talk about hydroxychloroquine, which is the drug that Trump said was going to be the game changer about um, the virus. Now, when I heard that at the press conference, my first thought was, I have that. I have hydroxychloroquine. You know why? Because I took it every day for two years. I took two, three antibiotics twice a day for two years. Let me say that again. Three antibiotics twice a day for two years to fight Lyme disease. This was from 2014 and 2015. That is insane. Do you have any idea the damage that that did to my body? But I was so desperate. And at the time, that was the only long-form multiple antibiotic treatment I could get. And thankfully, I was in California where the medical community was too stupid and too detached to actually understand what that meant. It was illegal to get this treatment in New York until recently when Cuomo made it legal because it was really the best option they had for Lyme. So hydro hydroxychloroquine is an old anti-malarial drug from World War II. And here's the sad part. This will tell you how deep pharma runs the power of the pharmaceutical industry. So I filled subscriptions, prescriptions for two years for three antibiotics. Two were relatively common. One is an exotic, hydro hydroxychloroquine. Not a single pharmacist ever said to me, why are you taking these? Why have you taken these so long? How come you're taking them together? No one said a word because pharma's making money. 
at the same time in California, it was illegal to buy pot. And I just remember thinking again, this is what we have to, as a culture, speak against. And I'm not anti-American. I'm anti-greed, corruption, deception, fraud. And if you look at the history of the pharmaceutical industry, it is a gold-paved street with all of those things. Okay, moving on. Let's see what this next point is. Take some photos, consumer, YouTube, pros don't say that. Oh, yeah, this is about vernacular. This is about speech. One thing I've noticed being now that I'm a YouTube darling and a star and I'm trending all the time, like trending so hard right now, my kidneys hurt, is that there's a vernacular on YouTube that does not transcend to the professional photography world. Very, very rarely does anyone in the professional photography industry use the phrase, take some photos. That is a... That is basically a sign around your neck that you are a YouTube bro or a consumer. They don't say, take some photos. Hey, we want to hire you to go take some photos. They don't say that. So if you're using that vernacular and you're trying to be a pro, stop. Because that's not, people say make photographs. They say, I got an assignment. I'm here to, I'm making photographs, not taking photographs. That tends to be what people say, et cetera. There's a whole different kind of thing. If you go to, if you go into, to show your work at a portfolio review and you're meeting with a gallerist or a curator and you say, oh, I love to take photos, amateur hour, amateur hour, just, I'm just giving you a little advice here. Okay. My battery's about to die. So we're going to move on. I got two more points. Oh, and then I should probably tell a story, but I don't have one off, uh, queued up. So I have to, I'll have to think about one here. Okay, zoonotic diseases. Um, this virus jumped from apparently from a bat to a human. And I think w- something that's gotten really lost because of, of so, how much trauma is happening out there is over 60% of dis- human diseases now are zoonotic. And that means a zoonotic disease means that it jumps from animal to human. So, but why is that? So it's, <laughs> there's a lot of reasons, but some of the primary reasons are that we are destroying habitat at a remarkable rate. Like we are so destined to destroy ourselves and the planet, it's not even funny. I think this pandemic is just the chapter one. We're destroying habitat and we're destroying species. So typically a virus like this would jump from the bat to another creature and not to a human. But we are destroying so much habitat, so much rainforest, so much land. We're developing roads, developments, apartments, golf courses all over the world, clear-cutting, agriculture, that these species, 20,000 species are on the extinction block, right? They're ready to go. Now, when this system collapse happens, which it does on Earth every couple of million years, um, we're gone, right? There's, w- the humans are, are going to be an afterthought because the, we're going to have system collapse, right? So we're killing off species at the low end, plants, and at the high end, the apex predators are being killed off as well. So we're killing off the rhinos and the crocodiles and the sharks and everything else that are apex predators that have been around for millions of years. And we're also killing the plants. And we keep doing it and we keep talking about it as if, boy, this is terrible and we really got to change this around. But again, global corruption, fraud, deception, the power of the corporations, maybe the virus is what flips the switch and allows us to get power back. And we get back to a basic thing of saying, you know what? I cannot get on an airplane every month as a photographer. That is so incredibly wasteful and selfish and and unneeded. Um, I was dreaming earlier today about AG23 and dreaming about AG being a society where I could say Fleming Jensen is AG23 Copenhagen and Charlene is AG23 Singapore and I'm AG23 New Mexico and you're AG23 New York or you're AG23 Hamburg. And then we work as a collective and, and WIM in Hamburg covers Hamburg and I cover New Mexico and Fleming covers Denmark and Charlene covers wherever she's living at that moment. Uh, Instead of everybody hopping on planes and burning jet fuel and flying around and doing all this stuff we don't need to do, we get back to the basics and say, this is my piece of the earth. This is my piece of the planet. I need to know it. I need to understand it. I need to help it, et cetera. So we cannot continue, obviously, and I'm no scientist. I mean, I read a lot, but I'm, I'm, you know, I have a minor in anthropology, so that means absolutely nothing. But it's just amazing to me that we continue to do this. And I think one of the reasons is that we have now two, three, four generations of people who have no connection to earth or land because they grew up in the city. 75% of all humans live in cities now, and we have a total disconnect to what's happening in the natural world. So this goes back again to the education. It goes back to us saying, okay, we're not the best people in the world. I mean, Trump and Zinke and Pruitt rolled back protection on national monuments. How idiotic. 
And that's 100% greed. That is 100% saying, I'm making money off of this. I'm, and Trump's never been in a national monument. He's a clown. He, you know, he, he, during the forest fires in California, he stood with his little penny loafers on talking about sweeping the forest. I mean, this guy is clueless when it comes to the environment. He doesn't care. It's just something to be used up and profited from. So we've got to quit doing that and allow the viruses to jump from animal to animal and not to us. Okay, the last point I want to make is there's three films right now that if you haven't seen, you should see. This is a trilogy that are three totally unrelated films on the surface, but I think they all go really well together. The first, if you haven't seen it, is called The Great Hack, which is about the Cambridge Analytica uh, influence in the 2016 election, which is what got Trump elected. Um, I don't care if you're an ardent Trump supporter or you're an ardent Hillary supporter. I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. It does not matter to me. This is an incredible story about the power and influence of technology on our lives. And also, again, corruption, specific, illegal, fraud, corruption, horrible human beings. The movie's done incredibly well. The story is fantastic. Make sure you watch it because it's incredibly relevant to what's happening right now. The second film is The Big Short. And The Big Short was about the financial collapse. It was written by Michael Lewis. He also did a book called Flash Boys, which if you haven't read is incredible. Everything he writes is fantastic. Get it, read it. But The Big Short tracks the 2008 financial crisis and also tracks the fact that hardly anyone was, went to jail. I think one Wall Street person went to jail, a guy from Swiss Bank, um, and no one else did. They got bonuses. And all of those same people immediately within a two-year time frame, we're starting to do the same thing over again. And that is partly what's happening now. These people are all shorting the market to profit on the crash. And the same illegal, destructive, fraud, corruption is DNA level in the financial system. And that brings me to the third movie. The third movie, the third series that you should watch, two are movies, one is a series, is The Punisher on Netflix. The Punisher is a Marvel series. It's incredibly violent. It's about a guy whose family's killed, he's a military guy. His family's killed, and he basically goes out and kills everyone that's been involved in how his, uh, in his family being killed. I thought the series was incredibly well done. I can't remember the name of the main actor, but he's awesome. He's, he was really good in everything. He was in Fury. Uh, he's in uh, Sicario. Um, great, great actor. The cast is good. The scenes are good. Everything is good. But that, to me, is what it's going to take. It, I, I watched The Punisher, and I said to myself, that might be the only thing that changes things in America, because the fraud level is at such a, a DNA invasive level of corruption and fraud, state, local, federal, everything, that it is going to take a revolution to change this place. So that's it. Okay, now let me think about something. I'm looking around my office at, oh, uh, I, I got a final story here that I'm going to end on, hopefully before my battery dies. I always I like to save this to the end because I think it's kind of relevant, but these are stories from my career as a photographer and kind of funny, funny things that happened or tragic things or whatever. But behind me on the wall is the first picture I ever had on the AP wire, Associated Press, for those of you who are new to the photography game, which has historically been one of the most important news-gathering organizations in the history of photography. And there's, AP is still around. And the old joke is you can't spell crap without AP. I've only been a stringer for AP. I've, I've been a stringer for Reuters, AFP, um, uh, who else? Somebody else. I can't remember. A few wire, different wire services over the years. Never a lot, just occasionally. So I covered the political convention in Houston in 1992. I was a student at UT Austin, and my friend John and I decided to drive over to Houston and John is an AP photographer, actually, and still is. I think he's been with them since we got out of college, so he's been there forever. Good photographer, good guy, smart. I think he was a year ahead of me in school. So he told me, hey, this convention's going on. It's a national political convention, Republican convention in Houston. You should go cover it. And I'm like, awesome. So I drive over, and on the way, I see all these people pulled over on the side of the highway, and I pull over to see what's going on. And there were these people who were organizing protests, and they gave me literally a handout of everywhere they were going to be and what they were doing. And I was like, holy shit, this is like a cheat sheet to the whole thing. So I got access to some really incredible stuff. I did not waste a lot of time. This was my first real time around a major news event like that, where you had presidential people inside the convention center, you had a designated protest area, you had tens of thousands of people outside, both expressing their pleasure and others their displeasure of what was happening inside. I've covered them in 92, 96, 2000. It's always been interesting. By 2000, the world had become so uninteresting to me in that way that I stopped doing them. Um, but the first three that I did were phenomenal. 
So I get there and there was a couple of things I remember is I was, we're outside most of the day. I remember Robert Downey Jr. was there in a van driving around doing interviews and he had no shirt on. I remember that for some reason. It was very strange. I think this was during a part of his life where, life where he was not quite sober, I'm guessing. I don't know. But he was, he was there, and um, he had no shirt on. I remember that. Not, not entirely sure why. Just kind of odd because he was the only one around that didn't have a shirt on. So we're all hanging around. We're shooting different things. I'm shooting anti-abortion protests. I'm watching photographers pay business owners to keep other photographers out of locations so that they can get their shot. I'm watching photographers for the first time in my life pay people to pose and fake images. Yeah, I saw that happening. I started to realize, okay, this whole journalism world is not on the up and up. You know, not everyone is ethical and people are doing basically it's the Wild West. They're doing whatever they want. Uh, And so I also remember there was this group that was the Bosnian War was going on. And there was this guy with a drum that was going, help, help, Bosnia, help, help, Bosnia, pounding on this drum 24 hours a day. It was the soundtrack in the back that we just could not get away from. It, it permeated our skin. Help, help, Bosnia. We would just look at each other and like lose it. It was so effective because we were just like, look, someone stopped the war in Bosnia now because the drum is getting to us. So night goes down. Houston Police Department at the time had a terrible reputation for violence. And that's, this is true. You know, Los Angeles has a terrible and well-deserved track record of violence. New York City has a track record of corruption. Historically, that's been the case with these police departments. Houston was violent. So as I get to town, a guy in a purple Volkswagen bug pulls up, and it turns out he's a photographer for the Houston Chronicle. And he says to me, hey, you know, these are parts of town you do not go by yourself. And oh, by the way, watch your ass when it comes to the Houston PD. So one night in the designated protest area, which is the area they have officially built for people to protest, the Houston Police Department, for whatever reason, decides to get on horseback with clubs and ride their horses through the crowd clubbing people. So I'm in the middle of this with a Nikon F4 and a 24 and a strobe and a giant press credential around my neck trying not to get clubbed, trying to shoot at the same time. And this is the image that I made, was a young guy with a drum with um, two cops grabbing him and a small guy behind him getting ready to bite the cop on the arm. And the funny part is my buddy John is in the background of the photo, not shooting. So I, for my entire life, I can hang this over him like, I got it, you didn't. I nailed it, you didn't. Now, he probably, had, he probably ended up with a lot better imagery than I did. But anyway, that was the photo that happened that night. Um, it ran on the AP wire. That was my first image on the wire. But then something happened even better the next night, which I don't have images of. And you can't see any of these anyway, so who gives, who gives a crap? So the next night, the Houston PD by now is just getting warmed up, right? And what I figured out by 2000 was that the police departments use these events as training. And there's no one looking because they block off all the roads and streets in these downtown areas, and they have total control. They can do whatever they want. I saw them beat business owners. I've seen them club women and kids. I've seen them do everything that Americans go, oh, the police department would never do that. They're the good guys. There are a lot of good people, but there's also a lot of wackos who are just love violence, and they know that they can get away with it. I've even seen cops going after other, you know, sheriff's department, whatever. And when you have a convention like this, you've got all kinds of uh, authorities there, you know, and they are, they're prepped up. They got riot gear on, they got tear gas, they got whatever. I can tell stories too about the, the subsequent events, but San Diego was the most peaceful. Los Angeles, incredibly violent and Houston, incredibly violent. So the next night in Houston, there's a protest group that's going to go and there's a designated area through town, street by street, block by block. That's officially the, the route that you go. If you want to protest, you can get your signs, you can go out with your drums and your bullhorns and get your message across. So we're, and we're kind of bored. And so we're, we decide to follow this group of people. And about halfway through, I'm looking at the map and Houston police on horseback has the route, the route blocked and they turn this group of protesters down towards the convention center. And I'm looking at the map and I'm like, this is a dead end. This isn't good. This isn't the official thing. Sure enough, the police, Houston PD marches people down. It's in a dead end. And now they're just waiting for it to unravel so that they can come back in and like club people and run over them on your horses and everything. And I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm stuck. I'm trapped. I have a chain link fence on two sides. I have a row of horse, horses in front of me with police. I've got a row of barriers separating me. And the only way out is the way we came in. So I'm sitting there and all of a sudden the protesters realize what the police have done and they get pissed and they set the barriers on fire. 
And now it's like you just threw a road flare and a tank of gasoline. It just blows up, right? And now I'm not concerned about images. I'm trying not to get clubbed and run over by horses. So I, I make a break for the chain link fence and I run and I'm three quarters of the way up this chain link fence with my gear. And I realize there's three rows of razor wire at the top. I'm screwed. I'm hanging on the fence, looking down and across the way, I see the same guy with the purple Volkswagen on foot and he's big. He's kind of fat and he's out of shape. And I was like, okay, dude, this isn't cool, but I know I'm faster than you are. And if I'm between, if you're between me and the clubs and the horses, they're going to get you and not me. So I drop down, I bolt through this giant thing of fire. I run across into an open field and now the police are coming from all angles on horseback and on foot in riot gear. And they are clubbing anyone and anything they can get close to. So I'm now behind this big fat photographer who's backpedaling and shooting. He's got a strobe. So pa pa pa, And the field's totally black. And here comes a television cameraman and a reporter, and they're running for their lives. And I have a motor drive sequence of the cops coming up behind him, hitting the cameraman in the back of the legs. He goes down. The reporter goes down. And they're wailing on this guy. And the television guy, to his credit, leaves the volume on, the audio on. And he gets the cops saying, don't beat them when the TV lights are on. And it was like this big story that came out of like, look, they were just trying to crack heads, right? To like, they didn't want people protesting. Maybe they did, took offense at what people were protesting to. These events in my life were very transformative because you realize there's the world that you, you were taught existed, and then there's the real world. And that there's an ugly side to things that you think maybe there isn't an ugly side. You think maybe these are the, the world is cut and dry. There's the guy in the white hat and the guy in the black hat. And there's a good guy and the bad guy. But there is, we live in a mess of middle gray. And this experience with law enforcement, experience with people like doing things to me while out making pictures transcended the next 25 years. I mean, it's been happening. And I'm sure that if I went out and spent a lot of time in these places today, the same thing would happen. Now, you can't, it's again, I'm sure Houston Police Department, and this was a long time ago, this was 1992. I'm sure there were amazing people on that police force, but there were also people out there saying, and, and again, you're following orders as a police person. So it's not like you can say, you know, I'm not really into this riot. I'm going to sit this one out. You're like, here's your job. Do it. Don't ask questions. You just go do it. But somebody was given those orders. And that's the part to me where it rubbed me the wrong way, man. I hold a grudge. I was like, I, I, will, I will get my revenge at some point, um, which, you know, I didn't because I got out of photography and I don't care anymore. I do, but you know what I mean. So anyway, that's my f story for the week. Um, I am sitting here looking at some new equipment. It's cloudy today. I've already done my yoga. I've done a ton of work for Blurb today. Uploaded, I think, I don't know, half a dozen different films, different channels. I've got another little test going that I think you guys are going to be interested in here in the near future. And um, writing, reading, reading a really interesting book about what species will come after humans, which I think is pretty interesting and probably pretty timely. So anyway, wherever you are in this world, I hope you are solid. I hope you're safe. I hope you're being creative. I hope your family's good. It doesn't matter where you are, what you do, who you are. We're all a collective society at this point. And uh, I hope everyone as well. If you need anything and you think that I can help you with it, be sure to reach out. And if I can't, I might know someone who can. So you just never know. Good luck. Talk soon.